Hello and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today my guest is a return visitor, Peter Wheeler. He is a man of many talents, plenty of opinions. He's the host of Pitchler and I'm really looking forward to having a good chat. So today we're going to be playing around the space of product-led growth, the lies we tell ourselves, why so much of the go-to-market motion is out of sync with the customer, and why ultimately we should be really focusing on making sales noble as a profession. It should be the most noble act we perform in business. And instead, it's become this sleazy, broken operation where the function has been turned into a factory. And customers don't really have a relationship with human beings anymore. They've got an interaction where they're transacted with, and then they're thrown over the wall to the next person. So Peter is from a marketing background, but he's run businesses. He's got a very, very sharp insight into the requirement to align and connect all the moving parts. So we're going to have a dig around all of this. Peter, welcome. Hey, thank you. I don't necessarily know if it's a positive thing to be a recidivist. But uh, between, between you and Pete, I've certainly had airtime on the uh, unpopular opinion shows. The hard truths. Let's call it hard truths. Well, I, I think that's what we should be starting with. Let's, so let, let's just deal with a couple of ugly truths out there. What are the lies that you see people consistently, repeatedly telling themselves about why the way they go to market is good? And let, let's talk about some of those pitfalls and the knock-on effects, the ripple effects downstream into the customer, employees, customer service, because we seem to be exporting an awful lot of misery. Yeah, I'll rewind and do a pitch to to help us get to this point because it's uh, you called it insight, and it's certainly more opinion based on experience. You had mentioned we're going to have a good chat, and I liked that pun. I've got that Hey Good Chat podcast about corporate social impact and ethical and responsible ways of working with nonprofits, and it's been very eye-opening on product impact. And so I'm forming an opinion based on that conversation. And then on the flip side, I've got Pitch Slap, which is the one that you mentioned. And that's one where I'm working with uh, everybody in go-to-market, whether it be marketing, sales, customer service, about their epiphany moment, both when they got into it and why they got into it. And a lot of people just fell into it. And when they decided that things were broken and they wanted to make a change, whether it be in their personal position or the way that they see things being done, and they wanted to reach out and be a leader in the space. So Beyond my my personal experiences, I'm taking advice from others in their methodology of sharing their experiences. Okay, well, look, tell me this. I'm seeing a number of things that are coming down from the top. It really culminates around the erosion of trust by putting short-term interests above the interests of the customer, above the interests of employees, and the net result of that is that there's this ripple effect through the organization. What do we need to do? Because I think we've come to a crunch point, I believe, because over the next two years, the sales profession and the go-to-market operation is going to go through quite a significant cull as the market contracts. Nice-to-haves are going to disappear. 
the only way you can really sell to most organizations of any substance is through ecosystems and through partners, because the number of vendors that most of these tech companies, uh, sorry, most of these end users have to deal with is stretching into the dozens or hundreds of different vendors. You know, in banks, they're talking 800 to 1,000 different vendors. Now, that just is unsustainable. And there's a huge push to focus on what we must have. So I'm really curious, why is it, or what is it that businesses need to do in order to start earning the trust that they've so willingly eroded and given away for short-term objectives? That all sounds like a personal problem. When you're itemizing out all these vendors and tools and technologies, that's certainly wasteful replete. And that's got to be the biggest hiccup right there, is searching for tools to solve problems. When when effort is required and in, and in lieu of effort, we're looking for a shortcut. And that's not a jab at AI. And I do want to fit that term into this so the SEO is high on the show. So we'll say AI, AI, <laughs> AI. But... There is no technology solution for person-to-person interaction. They're all conveyances. The utility is in delivery, not in message. And I think that that's where we mess up. Top-down, it's our personal message. What promises are we making to others? And in the the sales realm or in the marketing realm, it's going to be, what is our revenue going to look like? What are our forecasts? What are our projections? Are we being realistic? No, nobody's ever realistic. We should, that's The forecast is shooting the dream. In marketing, it's what does pipeline look like? And what is our um, responsibility to pipeline? What's our ethical responsibility to pipeline? And I think everybody's de- developed these behaviors with management setting unrealistic goals and trying to solve through tools, not training then sales absorbing that and leading by example. So many modern salespeople, and I'm talking by modern salespeople, folks that have been doing this since the 90s and the early 2000s that have somehow gotten into a very crippled habit of overpromising what others can do. where we're selling an incomplete solution or we're selling an incorrect solution so that we can hang up the phone. We race to get off the phone as fast as the people that we're cold calling are racing to get off the phone. And that's wild. That's absolutely wild. If anybody takes that, that that is like going on a date with somebody that you've been pursuing for some time. And before dessert shows up, you're, you're paying the bill. That's driving yourself out of there. We don't want to, we just don't want to do that. And then the other half of the joke is that marketing overpromises what they can do. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, we have sales barking at marketing, which creates mode and mood. We have marketing feeling uh, resentful to sales. We're making, we're not making any promises. We're bringing you leads. Well, the leads are trash. You know, we've, we've all had to sit through thousands of hours of Boiler Room and Glengarry Glen Ross, which is a whole nother set of problems on behavior and tone, that marketing becomes more obliged to product. And so what you mean lose this. That? Marketing has many masters and they have many obligated parties. 
And some marketing teams, this is still up for debate internally in my head, much less externally. And I'd be happy for anybody to ping me on LinkedIn and tell me I'm crazy or set me straight or just completely agree with me. I love being cheerleaded. Bringing your XDR teams inside of marketing. I think that I currently think that that's a great idea because you at least have a vocal conduit. Marketing loses two-way communication when they lose sales. The only two-way communication marketing relies on at that point is analytics, magic numbers coming through the door. You can you can trust the magic numbers, but you can also fib your origin and interpretation and everything else of the magic numbers. Sales is in the field. They're talking to customers. They're fighting for renewals. They're 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 conquering expansions. They're standing at trade show booths. And if marketing becomes resentful of sales because sales doesn't think marketing's coming through and they're treating them like that, then that communication is broken. So we have management throwing tools at people instead of training. We have them throwing heavy, heavy, heavy training at people. We have them hosting them in huge summits in cities that provoke bad behavior. And, you know, it thins the herd. I, 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 there's, there's, some, there's definitely some subtext on why that happens. Also, it's cheap to host in these cities. And then they become reliant on the tools. And, and one of my least favorite CEOs that I ever worked for, who the day I started, he said, I didn't ask for this job. So clearly we were all in agreement that he, he didn't want what was going on and we didn't want it from him. We were sitting in a room and he just blurted out, Marketing keeps asking me for more tools. And frankly, I think there's enough tools working in marketing. Mm -hmm. There's always resentment between teams if somebody's not accomplishing what they're promising to somebody else. You've touched on so many different elements, symptoms, and all of them point to one thing, which Management? is clarity at the top. Yeah. If, if we had a clear understanding of what the job everybody was serving that needed to be done was, then we were clear about how we were meant to execute our part of uh, that job. And there was a clear pathway in terms of timescales and maps and so on. And then it's relatively straightforward to bring people to make incredible change very quickly. And you can improve dramatically. But the problem is that almost no one's willing to put the time and the effort into the thinking and almost no one is willing to let go of their little fiefdoms. And that puts the customer at the end of a long chain of abuse. It puts employees in a position, particularly sales and customer success and operations, in a really bad place because sales is encouraged to, uh, to lie, steal, fib, do whatever they need to do to get a deal over the line. CS has to pick up the, on the pieces and operations has to make good. We spend most of our lives exporting the misery to other parts of the organization because of lack of alignment and lack of clarity, don't we? And, and lack of getting on the floor. It, what's what's yeah. interesting is you had, you had mentioned fiefdom, and, and I'm not going to pronounce it with the, the rhotic fiefdom because it sounds too much like thiefdom to me, but <laughs> I've always hated the term who owns the account. Mm. Because it should truly be who's got custody of the account. The, the account is an independent being. They, We've all had deals roll back. We've all had deals go at risk overnight and no idea why. Throughout the process, someone has to have custody of that account. And in many, many, many ways, we 
walk away from the account at some point. There's no true handoff, and handoff should always have a great deal of overlap. I mean, you watch a relay race, the runner handing off, even after the handoff, runs alongside the other one because there's momentum. And we we just we bail on that. That's not great. That's the custody aspect of it. And there's so many people down the chain. I was talking to a solutions engineer yesterday, and those folks are involved early in the process. They're the ones that I always find them as the fit. They're the tailor. You know, the salesperson's the 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 advertiser, cashier, store owner that makes you feel glorious and wonderful and that you need to purchase this new suit. But without the SE, you don't know if the suit fits. The SE is also your mirror. Breaking away from that analogy, this SE said the beauty of a, of software as a service, and I'm just leaning into one category, is that um, you should always be able to price to the value they're getting. I think that's awesome. That's awesome. But here's where the danger in bad training comes from. Here's where the danger in quota attainment comes from. I've seen so many organizations that, and I'm, I'm talking over 20 years of working. I'm not speaking to, you know, this, it, it, being a millennial, I've lived through more recessions than has ever been fair. We get to a point where instead of making things better or more communicative with a customer, management starts throwing out spiffs. Management starts easing deal desk. And we're hitting the end of a quarter. We're hitting an earnings call. It doesn't even need to be a publicly traded company. It can just be somebody with a ty tyrannical owner. And your sales leadership is going to be like, market, anything that you've got on the board is not allowed to be sandbagged to next quarter. Your obligation is to close the deal and we'll green light anything. So we're throwing in all the free stuff we can. We're discounting through the floor. And then when you add that term recession on it, there's this internal justification that makes no sense. Oh, well, everybody's broke right now. We just need to discount it so that they can afford it. Re recession means that growth slows. Uh, and it might slow by 3% or 4% or 5%, but 95% still continues. A 5% drop is a significant drop. But the economy continues. Human beings adapt. One of the biggest lies and myths that we uh, believe is that people fear change. They don't. They fear uncertainty. If the change is certain and the change is clear, people don't fear it at all. There may be a little bit of nervousness, but nowhere near as much as if it's vague or uncertain and it's being imposed with no voice or no opinion. And that's a distrust of their own competency. Because and, I've, I've seen so many people overlap that where... The fear of change is equal to the fear of unknown because they don't know how they'll handle it. So there, there's always an unknown element and a personal distrust. And I think the the fact that there is no coaching and that there that it, that it's all dictum. There's no coaching. There's no cheerleading. There's a gong. Yay! I get to ring a gong. That's not. You've got the tyranny of the playbook. The you know the dogma of the sales methodology. And you've got the metrics that are meant to drive growth because someone else has done it that way before. But by and large, what they're forgetting is that your customer doesn't give a damn about that stuff. What they really care about is, can you help me solve my problem?
Do you have my back? Is the way forward with you clear and certain? What they don't care about is your investors, your next funding round. They don't care about your company, your products, your features. And the problem is that salespeople seem to be taught to do all the things that bother and irritate customers. Why? I love that you're bringing that up because then we can throw in another acronym that'll raise the SEO here. Let's just say PLG, PLG, product-led growth, PLG. So the transcript gets posted, we're, we're there. <laughs> Think about the customer journey. The customer is showing, the customer is being marketed to. We have a solution. Okay, I, number one, I, I don't think that, that that can exist in perpetuity. I think that we have a solution level of marketing is, is on its way out, and I'll get to that later. But let the customer comes to the door. Customer's walking in. Customer says, can you solve my pain? I will even tell you what some of my pains are, and you can help me discover additional pains. What does the sales team do? They jump how much money you got how much money you got yeah are you the person that can make the decision on buying this how fast do you need it what the hell if you walked into any scenario if you walked into your doctor's office and said my shoulder is killing me yeah and your doctor said well how fast do you want it to feel better that's a weird question Mm -hmm. because the answer is now and if your doctor said are you are you able to make your own medical decisions and to provide your own self-care? You'd be like, that's why I'm here. That's how I'm here. Like we're asking the most asinine and insulting questions possible. Followed up with, can you afford this? Yeah. Or, or worse, I'm, I am uncertain as to whether you can afford this. So, why are we speaking to people this way? Why are we teaching all these methodologies that focus in on that when we've already made effort to build trust? And now we're showing that we have distrust. Like, well, that's terrible. And again, that's a that's a problem where we've shown distrust throughout our process with our own people. I think there is the hangover effect that most of the leadership who espouse the likes of Medic and Sandler and Richardson and they've come through the Xerox IBM schools. Then they um, did Medic because they went through BMC and various others and Unisys. And they ended up in leadership positions. And Milton Erickson has this lovely quote, which is, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, if you're from cold, direct new business, you look for everything that look, can be beaten with your cold, direct new business hammer. So you see partners as a threat or competition, or you undervalue it. If you're an engineer and you don't really understand the value of sales because you've only had bad experiences, both being sold to and hiring, then chances are you're not going to understand one another and you will come with a bunch of assumptions. And our job, I think, in sales is, first of all, to represent zero threat. And it's to give them comfort that we are there to serve and we have their back. Because the idea that buyer safety is in such short supply 
gives me hope because all you have to do is turn up and be a decent human being to stand apart. I, I, so, I, I, I sorry, hear go you. On. No, no, no. I mean, I, I, I absolutely hear you there. And I think that that, that is that is why there's these resentment this resentment building between teams and teams becoming ineffective and i've been in enough sales environments where sales appreciates a certain level of sovereignty that they have the expense accounts that they have the tne and when there's pushback from anyone i pay your check the amount of times i've been in a room where someone is is advocating for a solution or raising an issue and the salesperson responds with that doesn't i get what i want because what i'm doing pays the bills so this is about entitlement again that well means- again we go from sovereignty to entitlement to exile and when you look at something like product-led growth salespeople are like well the chain blah 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 like plg is a marketing owned motion PLG is a product-owned motion. PLG is a customer service-owned motion. PLG, with the exception of some level of sales-assisted PLG or a handout to the sales team is kind of how we can look at that. The next the next option up, you know, sales is excluded from the process. The customer is approached by marketing saying, the ones that are doing it right are switching to a jobs-to-be-done format. Yeah. We understand you have a pain. When you are trying to blank we provide blank to solve to provide this end scenario it's not to solve your problem nobody's looking to solve their problem people are looking to have some level of relief there's a difference between solving a problem and being able to treat something as business as usual i want to live my life a certain way is very different than you fix something for me like my mechanic fixing my car is the is that whole solutions sale my car not being broken my car running like i want it to run is actually what i want i don't want my car fixed i want my car to run yeah and that's where that that methodology that marketing is starting to adopt comes into play you have product teams that because of the such rapid feedback from customers that are operating in self-service environments because of the communities that they're given, because of the feedback loops that they're given, because of their interactivity with the product in mass, because everything's on Teams accounts and there's 30 or 40 users as opposed to one key account holder, product is able to pivot and understand it better and better utilize resources and make a more improved product. And then you've got everyone else, customer service, marketing again, product again, making solid documentation so that you're reducing costs in your account management, in your technical support. And the ones that are doing it really well have very broad, enthusiastic, rabid fan communities that are solving problems for other community members. And all you do is moderate and pay a hosting fee for your bulletin board system or forum or community Slack, whatever it may be. Where does sales fit in that? Well, they don't. Again, sales is, I think, risks being excluded entirely, and it will serve the customer poorly because over 40% of tickets raised are because of design flaws in software that were put in place by engineers who didn't speak to customers. So, again, very often, 
Um, my friend Jerry Lemberg, and um, rest his soul, said that entrepreneurs were people who created elegant solutions to problems that didn't exist. And quite often, people come up with a cucumber cover, uh, which is a fine idea. It stopped the uh, end go wrinkly, but you can just chop the end off and you really don't need it. And the problem is that with PLG, whilst it can be great, often because they are driving uh, with a particular outcome already uh, in their heads, they're not necessarily listening as well as they should. And the net result of that is that you end up getting a lot of products on the market, which are allegedly PLG, but there is absolutely no more need for. And like the world needed another email sequencer. Right. And it's marketing owns sales is, is, a, is a very interesting channel of PLG that I'm seeing right now. I think marketing should own sales. Well, no, well, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm, I'm talking in, in an even clumsier oh, right. way. Everybody wants to toss this acronym on the end of their resume. It's like having PhD. All right. And what it becomes is there's some product launched and there's no way for a customer to actually do it self-service. We, we fail to understand that self-service is the core element of PLG. Because otherwise, everything could be considered PLG because the product is what you're selling that leads to growth. So it's product-led growth. If you're launching and there's not a way for the customer to pay for the product, which I would say eight out of 10 products that I'm seeing come out right now, the customer can sign up. The customer may or may not be able to start using it. And the customer may or may not be able to pay for it. If you don't have those three simple checkboxes done, you don't have a PLG product fight me. If you disagree with me, if you've launched something, you say, this is PLG, but my customer can't set it up themselves and they can't pay for it without contacting us. I will gladly take you to the mat. That's just wild. We're, we're all trying to toss this acronym on either unfinished product or our enterprise product. And, and I love seeing how it's tossed on an enterprise product. This is again, that marketing sales motion to reduce sales cost to reduce commissions, to reduce active members in the field. And then your, your salespeople turn into menu presenters. Yeah. They're no longer consultative salespeople. And, it, and it's the salesperson's fault because we've all gotten away. We, we, I'm including myself, have all gotten away from consultative sales, from value sales, from treating your customer like your customer, like having a book of business as opposed to Salesforce renewal notifications. You're just getting to a point where the product is what it is. When you go buy a car now, there's not, you don't get that customization feel that you used to get. It is, we have this model. It comes in these three options. The best you can do is maybe change your wheels and your seat color. But if you get these various paint colors, it only comes in the one seat color. And that's what a salesperson in the car industry's life is like right now. We're headed that way. I thought they were going down the subscription route, but um, that's something else. Oh, it's always been subscription. That's what renewals are. It, it, it's no, no, just we I mean, subscriptions instead of monthly. Yeah. yeah, within the car. That's another show, buddy. I can be angry about that for a very long time. All of this keeps coming back to a failure to understand the real job to be done. And it's a failure to understand the job to be done of your employer, because what they're driving 
may not necessarily align with your values or the customer's best interests. And there is a massive disconnect between all the different fiefdoms and stovepipes across sales, marketing, management, leadership, finance, operations, and they're not aligned around the customer. We create so much friction. We create so many obstacles to the customer in the pursuit of efficiency that we fail to recognize that we're no longer effective. Knocking out 10,000 emails in a week or a day and having a 0.1% response rate and a 0.3% conversion rate is an ineffective use of people's time and effort and does enormous untold damage because it just deafens the market and all the people who got your free crappy marketing are probably going to be thinking, oh, I'm going to blacklist them if you haven't already got blacklisted. So we've got to we've got to start looking very, very seriously at what drives these idiotic behaviors. And we have to challenge them because every time you agree to do something that is not in the customer's best interest, it was your choice. Every time you lie, that was your choice. Every time you admit to say something that was relevant, that was your choice. No one had a gun to your head. And even if they did, it was still your choice. And we have to start taking responsibility. If we're genuine about making sales an honorable profession and making it the most noble thing that we do, then we have to take ownership. And there is no room for tolerating this kind of bending of the rules when it comes to looking after the customer's best interests. Yeah, we owe that stewardship to the customer. Yeah. To, to understand what what they what they want, not what they want solved, but what they want in the end. And if if we're not solid stewards in that, if we don't know how to check in, if we don't know how to say, hey, customer, do you mind talking to our business communications team and doing a case study? Or at least we have this net promoter score survey that we're doing. If you can't feel comfortable doing that with a customer, then you've never established a relationship with them. You've sold them something. And, you know, as salespeople, we, we get into this realm of we have an obligation to create loyalty and trust to the brand. That's where we're supporting the company. We have our obligation to creating loyalty and trust with the product. Does it work? That's your marketing and product teams. That's them being able to stand behind what they're promising. We fail ourselves in creating loyalty to ourselves. Hmm. We don't have, if, if you switch from your firm that you're at right now and you go to another business in a different industry, and you reach out to your existing book of business and ask for time to talk about your new solution. And you don't have a greater than 80% acceptance rate for the call to catch up, to ask you why you left, to truly be interested in you as a salesperson. You didn't establish a relationship. For them to go, oh, why did you move there? That must be cool tech because I bought this cool tech from you and you were really proud of it. And I'm loyal to the brand and I'm loyal to the product and I'm loyal to you and you are a good decision maker and you really helped me out. I would love to take the time with you. Yeah. I dare people to try and sell a different product to their existing customer and see if they can even get the phone call because we have failed 
to create customer loyalty. We have failed for a customer to go to a new organization and say, I'm going to call Marcus because he really did great. Oh, what does Marcus do? He's in this sales consulting thing and it's been really solid. It was really solid where I was at before. No, more than likely they'll say there was a method that I liked. So we're back on brand or there was an organization that we liked, but I don't care. I don't even remember who my AE was. Ooh, God, that's got to hurt, but none of us care. It should hurt. Yeah, absolutely. It should hurt. If you, if you walk out of a meeting with a prospect and it's not the most provocative, the most memorable, the most challenging conversation they've had that week, that month, that year, you fail. That's your job. Your job is to help people advance their understanding of their context, their situation, the causes of their problem, and help them move towards finding a solution to the problems that are probably more complex than they understand that they are. Because Mm -hmm. certainly in my line of work, if you throw a point solution at the problem, the odds are exceptionally high that what's going to happen next is you're just going to move the problem somewhere else. Deferment of problems. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was having a conversation with a leadership team a couple of weeks ago. The answer to their um, problem with revenue was to put more in the top of the funnel. So a couple of questions. First one, what's your conversion rate of first meeting to second? Oh, I don't know. Go and have a look. One in eight. Okay. So would it just not make more sense to work out why you're not converting seven out of eight and then not add more burden? Because every first meeting, on average for this company, was taking around 686 dials to get. That's how we get to 10,000 emails a month. Yeah. But why? Why do that? Why not just stop for a second and ask the most bloody obvious question, which is, is there a better way? If you have any of your motions or processes that have failure rates north of 50%, they're on the amber register. Anything north of 80% is on the red register. And anything over 90%, which is virtually everything in sales and marketing, that needs an instant review and you stop doing it immediately until you've worked out why you're wasting 90 to 99% of your effort and money. The most poignant and painful moment of my entrepreneurship, of, of owning various businesses, and something that led to failure of something pretty large um, I, you know, I'd driven it to seven fingers, seven figures single-handedly within two years, completely bootstrapped. And a client of mine that was in the same business, odd, odd way that I worked the business out, warned me. He said, maximize what you have before taking on something else. And I didn't heed that. We were opening new territories. We were expanding this way. We were expanding that way. And I'm not, that was not the cause of the downfall, but it was a huge, it was deferred pain. What could be reflected as misuse of resources. It was a business decision. It was a choice. It wasn't a right or wrong. It was just a route that we could go. And we were operating at, you know, in the core market, 50% of where we could have been and 10% of all the other markets because we just didn't we didn't do it it was it was binge eating opportunity and we're getting back into that wasteful replete 
again. And so if we're binge eating our prospects, what's the point? If we're binge eating lists, if we're like, that's, it doesn't work. Yeah, well, I mean, we spend most of our time eating our young, don't we? I just finished a beautiful book called Finding the Mother Tree by Suzanne Simard. And she's a Canadian forest and academic now. And she identified that the clear-cut policy um, that the foresters were using in order to try and uh, cultivate the forests was just killing them off. And she faced 20 years of massive resistance. Now, she grew up in the forest, you know, her family for years and whatever. Um, but what she realized, and if you've um, seen Avatar, you know there's that mother tree. You're talking about the the undergrowth argument. Yeah, absolutely. Where tree, so the, trees planted at separate times grow to different heights, and light still breaks through, and you have undergrowth, which means you have life. Otherwise, and, you just have tall trees with canopies. Well, but also what happens under the surface is there's this incredible network of fungus and bacteria mm -hmm. and uh, roots, and they share resources. They communicate. Now, the problem, the point I'm trying to make here is that is you're calling marketers fungus. I get it. Well, the, actually, the good fungus. Hopefully, the the problem is that if you overemphasize, as the Forestry Commission had done. And they wanted these pines because they were fast growing and they grow straight. But when you remove beech and you remove the other plants, that kills off the bacteria and the fungus. And then those trees don't grow as well. They die. They become uh, prone to infection, more prone to drought, more prone to fire. And when a bug invasion happens, they don't have the defenses to be able to defend against. Now, a business is the same. You need to think of a business as an ecosystem. There are inputs and there are outputs, and there are constraints. We have to work within the constraints. But the biggest constraint that we have, I think, is the ludicrous perception of time. Why do we have to do this in three years? Why not seven? And one of my questions whenever I'm speaking to new uh, clients is, well, how old are you? And they tell me 26. Okay. So that means you've got roughly 94 years left. Okay. If you wanted to excel in one thing, and all you did was improve half to 1% per day, and you're allowed evenings, weekends, and vacations off, how good could you be? And all of a sudden, they realize what's possible if they just shift their temporal focus. And I think so many businesses are have this disease of haste. Why can't we just slow down? There, there is no need to rush in. You end up with a solid business with customers who are loyal, employees who stay for years, which means that you actually derive real value from them. And um, you know, the a salesperson hits their full stride in year 2.6. The average turnover is 12 to 14 months. So you never get full value out of anybody. It's insane. What do you reckon? <laughs> uh, I don't know, buddy. I don't know. I, you know, that there is, there is that certain level of siloing and we're getting back into distrust in the, this nonprofit, this product impact world, the, the people that own product impact are traditionally, they, they, they may be marketers and they're traditionally just 
in that good human category. So they're, they're focusing in nonprofit work and they're only interacted with salespeople because they create a massive friction point for salespeople in the qualification of something of a, of a customer being a candidate for whatever the program may be. And it's funny. I see these programs starting to thrive because there is this demanded communication channel and this demanded understanding. And I know it in my positions in, in that, both in the nonprofit and other uh, specialized verticals, I would never hear from the sales team inbound asking who I am, what I do, how I help them. I would have to reach out and say, I'm doing this thing that is going to save the world for you. While you're telling the customers we cure cancer, I'm curing yours. And I don't know, maybe maybe we need to cause, maybe salespeople need to pay, feel pain from both sides. I don't think that's fair. But I do think if sales just reached out to their teams and said, who are you? What do you do? How does it help the organization? I think this should be part of any induction process. So the onboarding process needs to be you spend time in the other departments because everyone's in a hurry to try and generate the revenue. But if I don't understand how the work that they do affects me and how the work I do affects others, then chances are I'm going to go blithely on continuing to create more workload for other people downstream. The compensation needs to be looked at. You know, comp plans currently drive terrible behavior. We know that from the research that 100% salary tends to result in much better uh, outcomes for customers. But I don't think that's uh, far enough. I think what we need to do is we need to have an outcome-based compensation model where the customer has very specific criteria that they um, say, this is what I intended when I made this significant strategic investment. And when they report back that they have accomplished that, then everyone on the team who contributed gets recognized and rewarded. And then they celebrate with the customer. Because I think we've got to start recognizing that we should be partnering with the customer. We're not oh, God, I hate that term. Hmm? Your customer is your customer. No, I disagree. I, it, it, but again, it depends on how you're defining partner. I think we have very different roles, but we are aligned around the job to be done, which is the customer's job to be done. And our job is to help them execute as best we can our part of that. And partners help each other get better. They fight. They argue constructively. That's our job. We're not there to be their accomplice. We're there to be their ally. And too often, I'll take ally. Uh, I'll take ally. I will not take partner. I, I think we're too immature to use that term partner. The the way that everyone uses partner right now is sloughing off responsibility. Yes, that's why we're selling a we're selling a journey. Customers are paying one hundred percent of the price for eighty percent of the product. Yeah. Everybody everybody uses the term partner. That's what they do. Fight me on it again. I'd, I'll gladly have that conversation. Now, let, let's let's just do a real life. If you go to a restaurant. And instead of being called a, a customer, the chef calls you a partner. You have an obligation to go into the kitchen and work with them. Partners build together. They're building a household together. They're building whatever they may be building together. You can call the people that you work with your partners or your team, but don't call your customer your partner until you've established the point, like you said, of allyship. 
yeah. of, of understanding yeah. them and being able to carry them. Until then, you have to treat them like a customer. You have 100% of obligation to them. The only obligation that they have to you is paying on time in full. That's it. And yeah, I, I'm, I'm not a fan of calling your customers partners until we get a little bit further along in our maturity. I absolutely 100% agree with you that we are generally not that mature. I, I like to think that uh, having written the book on it, I might have a, a slightly different perspective. But again, the reality... We've all written I, books, Marcus. Is it published? Yeah, yeah Yes, it is. Um, okay, okay. <laughs> uh, it's on partnering. But you're absolutely right. Most people do not do partnering. So I worked in a franchise. It never felt really like a partnership because the operations manual... And the contract served the franchise. It did not serve us. There was not a single clause that served us, as far as I can recall. I read through it and I thought, well, I want this anyway. So I signed. Because it was so a recipro- reciprocity and reward and reciprocity and risk. Those are the those are the two obligations you have yeah. in, in a partnership. But again, you also have trust and there is mutuality there. So let's park the term partner. We'll go with allyship, but we have to be working with our customers, helping them look into the future and see around corners. That's, the, that's where our skill lies. It's not in being the uh, only source of information that they used, uh, we used to have stranglehold on. Now information is just everywhere, the world wide web. Now, the, the problem is that how you use that information in order to inform better decisions. And that's what salespeople should be doing. We need to do our research. We need to align and make sure that all the different moving parts in our organization are geared around delivering that message to the customer at a timely moment, be relevant and be valuable to them to help them move their understanding forward. And most of the time that we spend uh, engaging with a customer is not in the sales process. It's in the passive looking stage because they're in passive looking a lot longer than they are in buying. I like that you had mentioned trust and fear through, throughout this in the sales process. And I, th- I, I would argue to say that most salespeople are human beings at heart. I agree. And that Everyone has a desire to do it a better way, to do it a healthier way for themselves, for their customers, for the organizations they work for, but they don't feel that they're trusted to do that. They're given a prescription and they must follow that. They they don't trust themselves to ideate and deviate to something that works. The best salespeople I know are, are often off script and they get to a point where they where they are excused to be off script by management. And that creates a weird dynamic as well. I, I don't encourage that, but I, I do encourage the breaking away from prescribed tooling and again, going bespoke, tailoring, not only tailoring to your customer, but tailoring to yourself. Absolutely. Since we're, we're name dropping books, there's a, a wonderful book called Selling Sustainably by a gentleman named uh, Kenneth Ward. And it goes into, it's not just ethical solutions selling, 
which is is the easiest thing. It's how to define the relationship. This is a guy that's been selling for 35, I think 40 years at all levels. And he's got customers that he's had that length of time. He's not an unsuccessful person. And the, the ideology is surprisingly simple. It, it almost falls back to the golden rule, treat others how you'd want to be treated yourself. And that's why every analogy I've thrown out here is how would you feel if you were treated this way? The key is to treat others as they wish to be treated. And you cannot do that if you're following a script. You cannot do that if you're uh, rigidly stuck on a playbook and on rails. And you cannot do that if you're just using the silence to wait to ask your next crappy question. So we've got to start with the customer and build out from there. And that's something that has been completely lost. So there's someone... As someone with a disability that makes him prone to silencing the other voices and waiting for my turn to to speak, there there are meta, medical excuses for a lot of us, and I think that there are a lot of a lot of people like me got into sales because of that. What do you see as the mindful technique to actually hear what someone else is saying? And respond to the conversation, not respond with your argument? Well, I think it starts with intent. If your intent is to sell the meeting or your intent is to close the deal, you project that out and that represents an existential threat to their subconscious. And they then get defensive and they resist. So I think the first thing we have to do is we have to make sure that they're comfortable with us human being to human being. So uh, I call it the Jimmy Carr rule. I will give it a slightly uh, cleaner version. But his version is, uh, well, the, the, the not polite version is a lot ruder. But if you meet three arseholes by 12 o'clock, you're probably the arsehole. Don't be an arsehole. Start out by being a decent human being and show up with the intent to help. And to serve, there's no shame in service. We're social primates, for goodness sake. You know, we, we derive enormous satisfaction from contribution. So if you turn up with the intention to serve and you're there to hear what they have to say, to feel what they feel, to understand them, they will tell you almost in, in, entirely exactly what it is you need to give them. And you don't make yourself the issue. I was coaching a client this morning and I was teaching him about TA, the parent adult child model. Well, on your shoulders, your parents and your grandparents are sitting and their parents, adults and child on both sides of your family are sat there guiding you, scripting you, telling you about what's right and wrong and what you, where your place in the world is. Now, if you can remove that level of complexity from the conversation, you're already so far ahead. Because remember, you come with a lot of baggage. You come with history. You come with biases. You come with assumptions. You come with hopes and fears. Now, if you don't make yourself the issue and you just focus on the other person, miraculously, you're no longer a threat and you're somebody they can confide in. Isn't that what we really want? 
that goes back into trust and fear. You know, I'm, I'm, well, I'm going to lean into that, that co- colloquialism of, you know, putting my cards on the table. Do you know how amazing it would be to, to walk into a sales conversation and say, I am here because I am trying to sell you something. That's that's inherent. They already know that, but you never vocalize it. So being able to just say, I'm not the bad guy, but I am here to sell you something. Point one. Point two, my objective is only to sell you something if it's the right fit. Point two. Point three, the only way that I can examine if it's the right fit and have a real conversation with you is to get those two things out of the way so you can drop your guard and trust me a little bit. And then I can trust you more and we can have full disclosure. Do you need your NDA? Do you need do you need to have more people in the room? That would be awesome to be able to walk into every sales meeting and say something like that. And to get a and to get a qualified and and eager response from it. But why can't we just do that? I mean, it's so simple to do. And I've never once in all the time that I've been selling and used that kind of approach had someone tell me, no, I don't want to uh, agree an agenda. No, I don't want to agree next steps. No, it's not okay for me to say no. And no, it's not okay for me to ask penetrating and difficult questions. It's beautifully logical. And it's so simple Mm -hmm. that people forget because they treat it like a shopping list. They don't treat it like a conversation, like an agreement back and forth. Because for an agreement to exist, you have to have offer and acceptance. But if all you're doing is treating it as a technique and reading through it as a shopping list, you never get the acceptance. What you get is lip service. And this is why so many pipelines are full in the middle of stuff that just doesn't move. It's insane. Well, and, and worse, the, the rollbacks. Like, yeah. You, you make that second point of, I only want to give you what's right. And the, cus- the customer can't trust that. They, they, they doesn't make sense to them. You're here to sell me something, dot, dot, dot. But you want to make sure that it's right. I don't, I don't see how those aren't conflicting. And you have to make the argument of the money's not worth it. The money's not worth hearing you complain to me nonstop. The money's not worth account managers coming to me saying, what did you do? Why did you sell them this? It's not worth customer care being angry it's not worth putting a deal at risk after it's done hearing from management paying back on a commission like it's not worth any of that how do you you know it's just it's so hard to be vulnerable as a salesperson I, i think actually it's very simple to be vulnerable but the difficulty is the noise between your ears because most people fear that if they do that then they'll lose the deal. And this is about attachment. They fear that if they uh, tell the truth, the buyer won't buy. Well, I I can honestly say, and I don't have academic proof, uh, but I do have 18 years of teaching people to do this, and they have been remarkably successful when they do. Just tell the truth, always. As Mark Twain said, that way you don't have to remember anything which is kind of handy. And if you tell the truth, you become someone who is known by your word. Now, in all honesty, that is more precious to me than any customer or any deal. Because if you're known for keeping your word, when you say something, people pay attention. 
That's priceless. And most salespeople give that away for a short-term deal to make it through a quarter. And that's a choice. They not sacrifice it. It's not that they give sacrifice. it away. Yeah. yeah, it's and and so that's where we get into that that discussion of the the brand loyalty, the product loyalty, and the loyalty to your advisor, your ally, your salesperson. We mm -hmm. threw some challenges, at least I threw some challenges out there about who and how to communicate with and um, also to communicate with me and yell at me. What what else you got, Mr. Marcus? I'd like to look at um, a couple of other areas as well. Recruitment and compensation. Who we recruit and who we consider to be fit for purpose in leadership, in management and in sales is massively out of kilter with the customer's best interests or the interests of shareholders. And the way we compensate drives insane behaviors. So what are we gonna do about this? Because enough is enough. In one of our previous conversations, that was too, too explicit to record, you said fit for service now. Fit for and purpose. you had been very clear with me that competence was the only thing people were looking for these days. And if competence is fit for service, how are we defining competence? Is it against the JD? Is it against the status quo? Is it against a, some goal that we've never accomplished or attempted before? Because it, at that point, we're, we're putting individuals, their livelihood, and the, the, the obligations they have, whether they be people, pet, or property, at risk. That's somewhat unethical. It, I oh, think they can do the job. The human cost of all of this is ridiculous. I mean, the financial cost is massive. But I look at the number of perfectly capable people who've been hired and then put out of work because of bad planning, lack of intelligent thought gone into quotas, for example. Overassignment of quota is a classic uh, indicator that you've got a bunch of people who have absolutely no humanity about them and no understanding, because if they did, they wouldn't just arbitrarily increase a quota by 30% in a territory without actually having done any bothered, uh, any analysis to find out whether either the territory has the capacity to handle it or the salesperson is competent to do it. Now, on the subject of competency, I would suggest that people recruit for what they cannot train, but what you cannot train easily, although it can be trained and learned, is trust. Now, I think that whole piece around trust is massively underplayed because the, the finance people can't measure it on a balance sheet. But trust given means that you end up getting more engagement, more discretionary effort, more profit per employee, more revenue per employee, higher discretionary effort, higher yield in terms of share price growth. Anyone who is telling us that behaving in the way that they are at the moment serves shareholder value is lying. It's just a patent lie. And it needs to be called out, I think. Yeah, but I, I think the, the fix that everybody's attempting right now are these long hiring cycles, this whole slow to hire, quick to fire scenario. And, and honestly, as somebody that's been a manager thousands of times over, which is just in, incredible for me to think about, there are people that stick out in my mind that sold me on soft skills. 
and duped me on soft skills because I weighted them similar to competence, because I weighted them heavier than competence. And I relied on the appearance of that capacity, that blend, that amalgamation of competence plus soft skills to allow them to be independent, that I had the perfect candidate. And boy, limerence is a bitch. Okay. And what was your onboarding process like? That was the problem because I trust, I, I felt through the use of the saw, this is somebody not only that I would want to work for me, this is someone that I would want to work with. This is someone that I would want to be a customer of. Little did I know they were lacking all these other things that I had an obligation to train properly. I, I will admit, I have been a terrible sales manager in the past. I've been a good sales manager as well. But yeah, I, I don't know. Pardon? What was your best mistake as a manager? My best mistake as a manager? Worst mistake as a manager was moving someone who was amazing at their job into a higher role that they didn't want. Best mistake as a manager was moving someone who was phenomenal and irreplaceable in their role to a role that they would be better at and wanted. But that's the difference between understanding risking and sacrificing. Risking is going from lower to higher value with the possibility it may not work out and you can lose some or all of it. And sacrificing is going from higher to lower value and there's no upside. And I think that misconception and in so many leaders and so many individuals uh, means that they end up making terrible decisions where there is no upside and then they have to live with the consequences. And mostly I put that down to lack of clarity and I put it down to lack of planning and preparation and I put it down to haste. If they slowed down and they reflected and they thought, well, what's really going on here? What's the real problem? Is there a better way? What if we were to stop doing this all together? Would it make any difference? And you know, people don't spend time in reflection. Keith Cunningham recommends 45 minutes a week with you, a legal pad, a pen, and one question and no interruptions. And you just write to answer that question. And it probably comes up with three, four, five pages of questions. But in understanding and going through that process, you actually have a fighting chance of breaking the impossible problems. You're speaking from from the pulpit that I've been on these past couple of weeks. You talked about planning and preparation. And planning is that that best case scenario. It's what you want to happen. It's all the steps aligned to what you want to happen. It's something that you provide to people that have an interest in what is going to happen, but have no active role in what is going to happen. And then preparedness is the little elements that align to the plan so that you have everything there. But the, this big problem that that you identified that we're seeing that is a known that happens for, that happens in the sacrifice mode is readiness, and I think readiness is a soft skill that many people lack, and many of those that have it don't have don't trust themselves to operate on it, and readiness is that moment where if things don't go according to plan, you are able to ideate a plan B. If things aren't going to plan and you have a plan B, you are able to make preparedness in plan B instantaneous. And there's just so many 
that is such a unique and amazing quality. And yeah, I'm, I'm kind of touting myself in that, but it's something that I really believe in that anybody can make a good plan. Anybody can drive an action plan against it. We always talk about strategy and tactics. Ooh, ooh, ooh. But again, you're pointing to something that is fundamental to people's confidence. When I am prepared and I have a plan and I've rehearsed it, I go in, they can throw anything at me and the plan doesn't survive contact with the customer. I get that. <laughs> but the reality is it's the planning that mattered because then I don't have to think about anything that goes according to plan. The only times I ever have to even raise a sweat is when they come off plan. Because in all honesty, I've been doing this long enough to know that I would be amazed if you will hear any more than 30 objections. And in fairness, it's probably near a five or seven. Okay, but 30 at the top end. You're never going to be asked for an original piece of information. They're never going to ask you an original, uh, hit you with an original objection or an original question. Once you've been on 20 or 30 meetings, you've heard every single thing you are ever going to hear in that company, almost, if you pitch it the old way. Now, the reality is, if you plan and prepare and you align and you've done your research and you understand their company, the individual, where they are in their life cycle, you understand where they are in their buying journey because you've done your research, you've multi-threaded, you've spoken to many people. And then uh, you come to them with a powerful, relevant hypothesis that's timely and appropriate, even if it's wrong, they'll give you the time of day because you will differentiate just by how you show up. Then through the diagnosis, instead of trying to do discovery, Chris Orlov had a post on LinkedIn last week, and he was bemoaning the fact that um, discovery is not an event, it's a process. Now, I posted a comment on there, I haven't heard back from him, but my question was, if the CRM is set up so that the discovery is a moment, an event, why would we expect our salespeople to behave any differently? And then we have these, you know, the BANT criteria and the gates that they have to go through. So we're driving these insane behaviors that don't work. We're actually spending a fortune filling the top of the pipeline and then educating our salespeople to stop customers from buying. How does that work? We're making what used to be a very exciting career into something very boring. I think you summed that up rather well. It's such a shame. I mean, the, the full sales cycle, that's a, an adventure. Why have we broken it up into a factory setting? Bandwidth, compensation, disciplines, too many frameworks, too many tools. You know, I'm, I'm seeing a lot, we're referencing LinkedIn. I'm seeing a lot of people now posting about going back to the old ways, not even having an auto dialer picking up the phone and doing it yourself. I'm waiting for flip Rolodexes to be back on top of people to the people's desks. Well, there you go. That could be our next business venture, Pete. I think it's an overshoot. But I, I, I do, you know, you had mentioned not necessarily cross-training, but bring your salesperson to workday for the marketing team. Bring your customer care person to workday for the sales team on onboarding. I, I don't think that's the right time. I think the right time is it's QBRs. 
We need product and marketing sitting in here. We need to, instead of talking bad about them behind their back, we need to rephrase how we're feeling about things in a way that we can say it to their face and get a good response. And we need to align objectives and compensation around the job to be done. Because if everyone is working towards the same job to be done, it's in everyone's interest to support everyone else. If, on the other hand, we're given divergent and competing objectives, we will follow those and pursue them. What we won't do is cooperate. We'll look at everyone within the business as the enemy or someone to be blamed or someone to have the problem dumped on their plate. And this is where your customer becomes your partner. This is where you stop referring to the champion customer is the person inside the organization you're starting to sell and your champion customer being the one that is more than happy to come in and do a panel with people on your team to do a panel with other customers to analyze the process i mean we're talking far beyond a net promoter score and and give real answers you know going going back to the automotive industry anything less than a five is a fail like you you're that is ingrained into you before you learn anything else Customer survey goes out, anything less than a five is a fail. Five out of five, or you're fired. And that's that's not feedback. That's not feedback. But again, I think part of the pro- um, problem, we're obviously going to wrap up in a second, but I think part of the problem here is that- Are we, buddy? Are we? Well, for, just for this episode. Part of the problem is that because we don't trust people and they don't have a voice, we're never listening to the people right at the sharp end. You know, decision-making needs to be pushed right down to the lowest point within the organization where they are capable of making that decision. And the simplest way of doing that is giving people a set of values against which they have to measure any decision with the psychological assurance that they will not be punished if they can demonstrate that they followed those um, uh, values. But if they didn't and it goes wrong, there are consequences. It's perfectly reasonable. Then it's all within their control. It's like the onboarding process. That onboarding process, the first 120 days is where you turn an A player into a C player overnight just by having them spend their time with all of your C players. That first 120 days, you're putting the new employer on probation. Is this the job I was sold? Is my boss an ass? Do I like the company? Do I like the people, the uh, the, uh, products, the customers? Am I better off somewhere else? That's going through every new employee's mind for the first 120 days at least. And anything other than a five out of five is a fail? Exactly, pretty much. So that onboarding process, I mean, people don't have a pre-onboarding process. They've got, there's a notice period. You could be using 30 days to start to acculturate the person. You could spend time helping them connect and give them access so they can hit the ground running in terms of uh, customer interviews and really understanding the customer through the customer's eyes, through the customer's voice. That, to me, would be a much better use of that time rather than faffing around with the way people do at the moment. And start dangling. I I always tease XDRs that want to move in, that want to get off ramp. They're always new in the space. I want to get off ramp. I want to get off ramp. Great. The second there's that number over your head, it's truly a countdown timer. You bring up something interesting, it's probably for another call. But the A players with C players, is it segregation or is it quarantine? And how do you accomplish that 
ever? Well, the first thing you do is you improve your recruitment process and you design candidates that are fit for purpose to do the job that they were hired for, which means that you have to take a very, very sharp scalpel to most job descriptions, which focus on historical skills, past experience, and historical results. They don't focus on predictors of success like values, habits, beliefs, attitudes, cognitive abilities. They don't focus on trust. Joe Mullins runs the Mullins Group. He has a policy that you hire for people who are high on trust. They can be average on competency, but they have to be high on trust. His consultants average 300 to 500% more billing per annum than anyone else in his sector. Now, trust is really key, and we don't recruit for that because we don't know how to recruit for it, because we don't. We teach people to do terrible interviews, and um, I've had a, a brilliant uh, friend. She's just got her PhD. She went for interview at Google, and she's had interview after interview with panels who didn't look up from their screen and they had five questions they had to go through and get answers to. Now, this is someone who sold over $40 million in her last year in a direct sales role as an individual contributor. And they treat her like that. She's one of the foremost leading experts in AI. And what do they do? They treat her like a piece of cattle. It's insane. That whole experience is part of marketing, it's part of culture, and it suggests something about leadership. Fear? Yeah. I mean, clinical, clinical is clinical, and some people are wired for clinical, and if your culture is built out of extremely clinical people, then that's the result you're going to get. I wouldn't necessarily say it's a negative, it's, it's, a, it's a personality trait, it's a quirk. Should clinical that's people be interviewing salespeople? No. Right, okay. But I mean, it just seems that we waste so much through um, inattention, through laziness, through just going through roads. Isn't it about time that we just started paying attention and thinking for a change? I mean, God, a salesperson who thinks, that's like military intelligence, isn't it? Yeah, but then they then then they promote that person to manager and they're absolutely miserable and they're making far less than they could make before and they they start talking about hurting cats and other insulting phrases about their circus. I I, I don't know. I th- I think that's because they're normally thrown in right at the deep end with no training because they're a good performer at being an individual contributor. And those are totally different skills. To be an IC, you've got to be relatively selfish and single-minded. To be a manager, you have to love helping other people be successful. You have to enjoy coaching. You have to enjoy developing other people and seeing them be successful and not get uh, jealous about it. Um, But that's, you know, the whole management layer has been badly recruited and they've been set up to fail. Okay, so somebody that has always thrived as an independent contributor, my my defense to avoid being thrown into that very murky swamp was that I, I can do the work of five for the price of two, but no one will pay my going rate. And it wasn't until honestly this year, you know, I need I needed four in front of my age 
to understand the difference between a manager and a leader and that I can that I am a good manager but I am a phenomenal leader. Right. And we can't take our phenomenal salespeople who are great leaders and great coaches and aspirational teammates. Aspirational is far more important than inspirational when you're in that kind of scenario. And we make them a manager, which builds conflict because that's the person who has to write the the pip. That's the person that's imposing quota. That's the person that's yelling about attainment. That's the person that like you you lose that trust and that aspiration. I don't want to be like my manager is a very easy phrase for a salesperson to say. Yeah. And but that is because those managers have been poorly selected. They have been left hanging to dry and they have a runway which is basically here take this concrete tie uh shove it around your neck and jump and see if you can swim six percent according to a study that the src did in about 2019 2020 of sales managers are fit for purpose now if 96 percent are not we then should be asking why and it's because People who are good at selling are not necessarily good at managing people. And if they are, very often the management or the leadership doesn't want to take them off the tools because if they do, they lose the revenue stream. And so they then make them player managers, which is like a spork. It's not good at either function. And under pressure, they will focus on their quota attainment, not on the team. So this is about bad thinking, bad management, bad decisions, further up the food chain, isn't it? You've, uh, a f- quote that in, in context is hilarious, and, and it's um, now spray the perfume in its eyes because that's how it happened to me, which is at the, <laughs> the birth of something. And, and I've always taken that as like... Um, my my birthing in something was this negative experience, and therefore I have to propagate that same negative experience because, of course, there was a reason that that happened. And I may never understand it, but I understood that it happened. And so it must happen to every iteration beyond me. Do you think that there was, um, what do they call it, Russian telegram? Do you think there was a break in the communication process that instilled this defect that that continued to perpetuate or do you think that there are people building management teams that have never been managers themselves that have never been on a floor that on a floor behind a windshield or carrying a bag themselves that have no business building those teams unilaterally that they need consultation but they don't they don't well, risk their their uh, piousness for the consultation. Well, what ego, what is the cause? That well, the cause is typically ego entitlement and ignorance, because what they'll tend to do is they'll recruit on the basis of a uh, an old job description. Normally, the person they fired had the same job description and the very similar advertisement to attract them. Um, the perfume. So, yeah, absolutely. So it's precisely spraying the perfume in the eye. Um, then um, they haven't designed the role in order to execute the job. What they've done is they've got a bunch of features and functions. 
that bear little or no relation to the actual job. So when that person is in the job, they don't really have clarity as to what is expected. When I'm bringing people into an organization, we have a 120-day onboarding plan, and it covers what they need to know, by when they need to know it, where they can find the information they need, how it will be measured, in the event of non-performance, what the consequences will be, and also performance, and what the rewards are if they accomplish it, and what the, uh, the negative knock-on effect is if they don't. Now, that's absolutely clear, and there is no ambiguity, and 100% of that is within their control. Whereas most onboarding, I remember my onboarding on several occasions, was read the operations manual in a hot, stuffy room, and then I was given a phone and a computer and told, you are one. Congratulations. They, they roll in the AV card, pop in the VHS tape. Yes, we've, we've all been there. <laughs> Well, and, um, in fairness, we had we had um, the big laser vision discs. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it, it, okay, okay. I hear you. I hear you. Okay. And I guess that goes with the clinicians as well in the hiring committees. Yeah, they're operating from the script. Now, the recoil, the entrepreneurial recoil, the founder recoil, the sales manager recoil. You just said. Someone idles for a quarter, 120 days. They're not simultaneously doing the work. They're not doing it as a as a homework assignment. No one this said, is this uh, is paid on the clock. Yeah, but it's 120 days learning how to be competent and independent. But we hire for competence, remember? Well, you don't hire for competence. What you hire for is the illusion of competence. Oh. That's what we were missing today. That's yeah, the, like that the is the point we missed control. in the call. Yeah, yeah. But it's like the illusion of control. CRM doesn't give the audit functions or management control. What it gives them is visibility of a series of lies. If CRM was useful to salespeople, it would be full of useful information. I've and got salespeople five. wouldn't be necessary. That's the other, that's the chunk of it. <laughs> well, there, there's always that possibility. But the, the reality is that most salespeople use CRM only because they have to. They do it begrudgingly. And 20% of the data in there might be useful. 80% is crap. And this is the, uh, the data upon which the board is making important investment and hiring decisions. That's where the pipeline comes from. The, you can't make decisions on the basis of a forecast that could vary 80% either way. And I've worked in organizations where the forecast was that inaccurate. You would have been better flipping a coin. Now, why? Because they were badly taught, they were badly recruited, they were badly onboarded. Then they were left out to hang out to dry. And when they failed, because um, there was no clarity and uh, everything was just get on and do it because we've hired veterans, they sink. And then you have this massive turnover. In the mid-market, a very large German software company had an average tenure of five months. These are for enterprise AEs selling into their, their mid-market, which is 2,000 to 5,000 people plus. And they have a turnover of five months for new hires. I mean, seriously. Resigned or dismissed? Both. Whatever that points to 
idiotic decisions at leadership levels. It cannot be anything else because they've created a culture that makes it impossible for people they hire to stay. What an obscenity. And then they lay thousands and thousands of people off because they're not hitting numbers. Of course they're not hitting numbers because you're doing everything you can possibly in order to prevent them from hitting numbers by measuring stuff that doesn't matter, like number of dials, number of emails, number of demos, number of proposals. Unless there's a qualification with those things, like demos with someone who's in our ICP and is on the decision-making committee and working towards a clearly defined timetable, which means that you do it at the end of the sales cycle, not at the beginning. Everything's skewed. Is there a role missing in all of this? Yes. Is there some accountable party that should exist? That's a really interesting question. My pal, Patrick Lindquist, was the head of innovation for the city of Helsingborg. And they created a role, which I can't remember the Swedish, but it was basically manager of the gaps. And their job was to bounce between all the different teams to make sure that there was clear communication and alignment. And they were the ones who brought everybody together to make sure that at certain milestone moments, everyone was uh, arriving at the same point. And where there was conflict, it was their job to identify what people had in common and to build bridges. Now, given how siloed things are, I think that person would have to be quite talented. But I think we need more mediators in businesses. I I think we need people who know how to build bridges. Because the people we disagree with, we probably agree with 97, 98% of the stuff. It's just a two or three percent, and we've got to find ways of getting past that. Yeah, it's usually it's usually a uh, language barrier. What do you mean, definitions? Yeah, because you you know you say mediator, and immediately to mind, I'm like, no, we need an arbiter, <laughs> and I'm splitting hairs there. Yeah, because to me, it's like we just need somebody to say which party's right, not necessarily how do we amalgamate and blend the opinions of both parties. So. Mediation isn't about that in my mind. Mediation is about reaching a win-win outcome that both both sides can live with forever or for a long time. The art of negotiation in my book is where neither side has to make any compromises. That's a real win-win, but that takes skill and patience. And again, you're, you're asking for time. All of us have disafforded ourselves. Absolutely. And I think it's wrong. I think if you slow down, you will make a lot more money. You have much happier relationships and you'll not be stressed. I've I've just done 15 client case study interviews. And the thing I'm proudest of is the fact that most of these people are working eight hour days. And they're at the top of their game and they're not sweating blood. And the end of the quarter is an exciting and interesting time because they never discount. Had one guy say he hasn't given a cent of discount in three years since we started working together. Now, just think about the cumulative effect of that in terms of his results and how much less prospecting it means that he has to do. I've just given him back or he's just taken back thousands of hours of time. That's what I think I sell. I sell people back their time. 
And on that note, I guess I'll sell you back your time. <laughs> okay, so one final question then. You so got it, buddy. You've got a blank sheet of paper and you're able to build your go-to-market operation from scratch. What do you not include that is currently all the all in vogue? What's the most basic fundamental uh, structure that would work? So I will I will lean back into being an elder millennial, a zennial, and I was being interviewed by uh, somebody in the in the mops category, someone in organizational development, and they they were just trying to to understand what what life looked like in GTM as a as a full spread and her question was what's the one tool you can't live without and i said well i grew up with a rotary phone and a cell phone i don't care the tool that i need most is trust runway so what could be forfeit on a on a gtm team i'll, I'll get into american pop culture is you know you need your a team you need individual you need that individual that can plan and you need that those individuals who are prepared and can operate against prepared and you need that leader who is ready for all catastrophe for everything not to go to plan they can reset it they can reset the planner and and remove the panic that the planner is having because the plan is not to plan I think all tools could be removed. I think there is no tool that is critical. You just said salespeople do not fill out CRMs. I've, I've joked for 20 years that salespeople don't do paperwork. I, I started that joke as a salesperson because I didn't want to do paperwork. And that was that was pen and pad. That was, a, what do they call that, NCR paper? You know, white, yellow, pink. Right. Here's your yellow copy. I'm keeping my white copy, and we're going to send I a pink copy off to Uh-huh. I don't... I. I think that tools fall back into deferment of, of having to solve a problem. All these tools are awesome. They're all great. I mean, right, right now we're using AI transcription tools so that we can go, oh, I had a brilliant moment, that one brilliant moment in a two-hour conversation. I definitely want to copy and paste that and make six LinkedIn posts out about it. <laughs> but I, I think if you don't develop the soft skills and you don't focus on what's important in the hard skills, the more tools you toss on to, to, to fix the gap in your own hard skills is, is self-defeating. It's masochism. You, you've touched on something really important here, which is that you've got to focus on the fundamentals, the basics. If you can't have a telephone conversation, if you can't have a face-to-face -face conversation, if you can't plan, if you cannot adapt, then you're in no position to be faffing around with all of this other technology that's meant to be driving scale. You've got to be, you can't scale until the business is ready for it. And this is part of the problem because uh, what I see time and time again is they get an injection of cash, they spend a fortune on advertising and they hire wildly and they have to compromise. I'd like to finish on this point, which is that you never, ever, compromise on recruitment. Better no breath than bad breath. 
don't make the mistake of creating a wrong hire because all you are doing is buying a series of very expensive and very distracting management problems. So my parting word is go and look at your recruitment process and who you've hired who hasn't worked out. And on one side of a piece of paper, write down for each job that you are going to be hiring all the qualities that will make that individual be successful in that role. On the other side of the piece of paper, write down all the qualities that will cause that person to fail in that role. And then build your job description from that. Because you've got your red flags and you can have questions to identify the red flag indicators. And once they're confirmed, it's an instant disqualification. So it's an easy Using, as you said, historical skills, historical activities, and historical results against those criterion you've derived. No, what you're looking for is patterns of habit. So I want to look at context, and then I will be asking them for multiple examples of how they've done it, because what I'm interested in is the narrative, not the fact necessarily that they have sold to a bank, but I want to see that there is a habit there, that there is a pattern of them doing it repeatedly. And I also want to see that they actually are telling the truth. Because more often than not, I remember when I was in recruitment, had a candidate who claimed a $17 million um, SAP deal. Um, And that was very exciting because I was recruiting for KPMG. And something didn't quite sit right. And it turned out he took the inbound inquiry. Now, he obviously checked the notes and followed everything, but I could have made a horrific mistake, and so could they. Because you were hiring a prospector? Because I was hiring, uh, no, I was hiring an AE. But the reality was he didn't have what they wanted. Now, he may well have worked out, but he wouldn't have been given the ramp up and he wouldn't have been given the onboarding he needed because they were hiring a veteran. Cool. Okay, look, um, let's wrap up. Have you got any books coming out? <laughs> I wrote a children's book. Okay. Do you want to plug that or do you want to do that? Uh, I guess. It's called The Internet is Coming for You. I didn't flip my camera around, so all the text is backwards. But it's uh, with some colleagues at Okta. We wrote this book right. on cybersecurity for, for children. And Okta sponsored the print run on it, which is even even. Oh, fantastic. I don't know how people <laughs> obtain it. We haven't figured that part out yet. But it is it is wonderful, and and the 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 secret behind it is you have adults that fall into ICP that are reading this over and over again to a kid, and we're drilling in our message. I got it. It's genius. With there, with that. Uh, so thank thank you. Well, the the meerkats are the icons for an insurance company, and they're an insurance aggregator. And what's really fascinating is people buying insurance in order to get a soft toy. And they've created this whole world about these Russian meerkats. And there's novels and stories and adverts and the whole thing. It's fantastic. So, yeah, yeah, you're creating you're creating culture, creating culture. Also, I'm going to replug Selling Sustainably because I absolutely love that book. And as someone that has been an experiential for 20 years and done some really cool and amazing things, digital events have been kicking my butt. And there's uh, Reinventing Virtual Events by Julia and Justin of HipCycle is one of the few marketing books I've read in the past six months that I've actually bent corners on. 
Excellent. No, they're both very good books. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, I'll have to get some some Marcus Kauke books. <laughs> Peter, how can people get hold of you? Peterledgrowth.com. It's the, the new fun domain for me. That's probably the best way. You'll see all my other things. I leave my Calendly open on there, so I hope people don't abuse that. LinkedIn's the best way to get rapid conversation with me. We can consider that my chat bot. Lovely. And uh, yeah, I'm around for any and everything. Excellent. Peter Wheeler, thank you. Thank you, buddy. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again for the Inquisitor podcast. If you're an AE or a manager who's really feeling the pressure, it was working, it's not anymore. And you're struggling to get in front of decision makers, you're struggling to close, your middle of your pipeline is constipated, then please give me a call. In 15 minutes, I'll probably be able to ask you a question that will help you to unlock what you're stuck on. And the link is in the blurb. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling.